0: Our stories are all we have. The only thing that can save us is to learn each other's stories, from beginning to end. For every life we know, we are expanded. These are the words of author Karen Fisher. I believe this quote to be exceedingly true. I believe that the thing that saves us is, in fact, hearing and learning from each other's stories. The stories of the person sitting next to you on the pew, the stories of the people sitting in the cubicle across from you at work, or at the table next to you at lunch today, or in the carpool lane ahead of you this week. And the stories of the people who have long since passed also help us, stories including those who have passed, risen from the dead, and returned to the right hand of God even. I believe that it is in the telling, listening, and knowing of these stories that we are expanded, that our hearts, like the Grinches, can grow three sizes in the midst of one encounter. Our understanding of why and how people do what they do is expanded. Our compassion, our courage, and our curiosity grow, making room for the other to become a someone. It is also in our story sharing that we begin to do the holy work of removing the deep aloneness that resides in each of us. The aloneness that causes each of us in some way to think that no one sees us, no one hears us, that we are fundamentally unlovable or completely alone or permanently on the outside. And of course, it is out of this sense of aloneness that we behave so very badly. It is out of this place that we do all the things we do to numb the pain of feeling left out or left behind. Or to draw attention to ourselves in unhealthy ways so that some, for some minute, for one moment, somebody has to pay attention to us, to see us, to praise us, to even chastise us. Or we push people away and we isolate ourselves in a pseudo protective bubble feeding the lie that we are undesirable or forever misunderstood, and therefore it is better and safer to just hide. But the problem with all of these self-imposed remedies is that A, they never work, because B, we cannot get rid of our own aloneness. Why? Because, as a Baptist Texan minister named Don McMinn once told me, that is not how we are created. In the beginning, way back at the beginning, the first bits of our origin story, we hear this little piece of information. And God said, it is not good for man to be alone, so I'll make him a companion. But if God was there with man, man wasn't alone, right? And yet, man needed a companion. Man needed another human. Man needed another person with flesh on to begin the holy work of removing that deep seated aloneness that's buried within each of us. So, From the creation of Eve for Adam to the laws to the Ten Commandments to the words of the prophets to the coming of Christ and to the letters of Paul and the early church, we hear story after story after story through the story-sharing nature of the Bible that God's core concern seems to be that we enter into the redemptive and healing work of relationship, of knowing and of being known with God and with each other, through the companionship that comes through shared experiences and in sharing our stories with each other. Which, according to what we read in Scripture, is a really messy process. But frankly, I find that comforting because my life is full of messy experiences and relationships with God, myself, and others, in large part because of that deep core of aloneness within me, that gnawing suspicion that somehow I missed the meeting and information session on how to belong. So it is in hearing stories of women like Sarah and Ruth and Martha that I begin to understand that I am not alone in my experiences and that I'm also deeply loved in the midst of the mess. And also, thankfully, in addition to the messy stories of faith of our ancestors and how they learned to love God and each other, we also have our stories to share. Stories that we need to share to help us know one another and God better. Stories that will help us feel less alone. So today I'm going to tell you a short story about how a story helped remove a chunk of my aloneness. And it's a little bit of a mothering story, which is appropriate for today. When Wiley was a baby, I was forever collecting used children's books for us to read together. And one day I stumbled upon a book called Peekaboo. The book was written by British authors Janet and Alan Alberg, and its original title in the UK is Peepo, which I guess is Peekaboo in British. It was inspired by the birth of their daughter Jessica, but the images with... The Allens wrote both the story and did the illustrations. The images are based on Allen's childhood home in England's black country where he was an illegitimate child adopted into a working-class family during World War II. The discovery of this book coincided with my discovery of all things British, with my love of English roses and shabby chic and French tea towels and scones. It also coincided with a growing belief that I was botching every part of my life, as I struggled to keep a house and raise a baby and be a help and encouragement to a husband who had a full-time job and was in college and manage our meager finances and tackle any small part-time job that was sent my way, it was a belief that left me feeling very, very alone. Surely everyone else had it all together and it was just me that was struggling. So back to peek beginning, I loved this book because of how English it was. I loved all the bits and pieces of English life that were in the illustrations. During the many, many, many repetitive readings that Wiley and I did of this book, I would entertain myself by looking at the illustrations in depth. The red stripe on the tablecloth, the crockery on the shelf, the victory garden in the backyard, the picture of Winston Churchill hanging behind the sofa. (laughs) I also have to say that when I first read the book, I sat a little bit in judgment of how messy the family's house was. I mean, sure, there was plenty to look at, but good grief. There were toys spilling out of drawers and shoes shoved under beds and dishes piled in the sink. On one page, there are half-eaten dinner on the table and a dog trying to eat what's left and there's heaps of laundry on every surface. And everything was just like a tad too shabby to be like acceptable. It was just a smidge worn thin. And frankly, it made me uncomfortable because it was just a little too familiar. It was a blatant reminder of all the things I was failing to handle well in real life. But then somewhere around the 100th reading, I noticed some other, you as small children know this, I noticed some other aspects of the images. I begin to notice how happy the family was in the illustrations. I begin to know how the father was as much involved in the homekeeping as the mother was. I notice how doting the grandmother seemed to always be helping around the house. How in each picture there were smiles and little acts of kindness and a sense of joy right down to that dog stealing the dinner. And everywhere from the little shoe left under the stool in the kitchen to the kids chasing each other around the garden to the piled-up laundry and the dirty dishes, there were signs of life. On each and every page, there were signs of a family who were living a robust life together. Messy, beautiful, real-life signs. And suddenly, I didn't feel so alone. I didn't feel like so much of a failure. And I began to see that maybe there was a gift in having a messy house. On Pinterest, I have pinned the following quote, Crying doesn't indicate that you're weak. Since birth, it has always been a sign that you are alive. I wonder if the same is true of a messy house. Maybe a messy house isn't a sign of failure or weakness. Maybe a messy house for us was instead just a sign that those in the home were living life to the fullest. Now, like any good thing, ice cream, wine, HGTV, I can take this too far, become a bit of a glutton. Dishes do need to be washed eventually. It's helpful for a bed to be made now and again. And everyone really does like a clean toilet. (laughs) But over the years as a Christ follower, I have learned that being a good steward of all that I have been includes taking care of our home and our property and our material possessions. That it can be a spiritual act. But being a good steward of my home and cleaning my house out of shame, rooted in a sense of aloneness, are two completely separate things. One is healthy and one is not. I know some people love to clean, and if that's you, yay you. <laughs> but that is not me, and that is not our family. We are a family of creatives and toddlers and mess makers. And while we do clean up our messes eventually, we do have a lot of fun making them. Our family is happy in that way. And as far as I can tell, God is infinitely more interested in how the relationships in my home are doing than how clean my baseboards are. As you know, our time with our boys living under our roof is getting shorter by the day, with Wiley going to college this fall especially. And when they pack their bags and move off into homes of their own, my prayer is not that they would look back on our years together and say, Sheesh, Mom was a real you-know-what about the floors. My prayer is that they remember a home that was full of life, full of joy, and full of love. And I pray that they will have learned the spiritual practice of stewardship by the cleaning of toilets and mopping of floors. But more importantly, I pray that they will have learned the stewardship of relationships, that the work of knowing and being known should always come first. I pray that when the time comes that they will know how to put down the dust rag and be present to the loved ones in their lives. How to choose to be present to the beautiful ordinary in front of them rather than always thinking of the next thing on their to-do list. So yes, there are days when we ignore the laundry so that we can read and draw and fiddle around. And there are nights after a long day of work and school when we ignore the toothpaste in the bathroom sink and just have dinner together. And then there are other days where we crack the whip and we all get the house clean, usually because you people are coming over. This is not the driving force of our days. Our house is often a mess, but I have come to see it as a beautiful mess because it means there is life there. And I wouldn't want it other way, any other way, but if it hadn't have been for that little book by the Allbergs, I don't know if my heart and my attitude would have expanded to see the beauty in the mess. And I don't know if I would have ever begin to feel less alone in our experience of a messy house I don't know that I would have ever had let go of the shame of not having it all together. So that is my story about a story that expanded my life and my heart and about how it not only expanded my life but hopefully in some small way it has expanded my boys' lives. Maybe in some way these ideas of beauty and mess and stewardship will live on in them and inform the way they care for both their families and their homes. Maybe the caring for relationships above all else will be on bold display in their lives as they grow. Maybe. Which, believe it or not, finally gets us to the gospel. The NRSV translation which we read this morning said this, Jesus prayed for his disciples. I have made your name known to those whom you gave me from the world. They were yours and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you, for the words that I gave, that you gave to me I have given to them, and they have received them. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. The last few verses are translated this way in the message. Everything mine is yours, and yours mine, and my life is on display in them, for I will no longer be visible in the world. Next week, we celebrate Pentecost, and then we enter into ordinary time. This is a time when, as Christians, we're reminded of our mission in the world and how to live it. And what is that mission? To live as Christ. To walk and move and speak and have our being on this earth during the most ordinary moments of our days in such a way that His life is on display through us. Just as I pray that a little bit of the spiritual practices of stewardship and presence are someday on display in the life of my kids, so we hear Christ praying for us on a much greater scale in today's gospel. Everything mine is yours and yours mine, and my life is on display in them. Make them holy, consecrated with the truth. Your word is consecrating truth. In the same way that you give me a mission in the world, I give them a mission in the world. All throughout scriptures, we see that God repeatedly tries to get across to the human race, that we are loved and treasured, and that we should love and treasure each other. And God does this over and over and over through the context of human relationships. And now we hear, through the prayer of Christ himself, that we are included in this lineage the lineage of Eve for Adam and the Ten Commandments and Christ and the prophets, we are part of the way that God intends to love the world. God's plan to flood the earth with love, a love that brings about restoration, justice, and mercy, that plan from the very beginning has always been that for those of us with skin on, to do the work of removing aloneness from each other. That is what it means for Christ's life to be displayed in us, that we learn and grow and work to do the things he did to remove aloneness in those he met, and that we learn how to love like he loved. That's why it's so important to share our stories with one another, to choose relationship over status or comfort or convenience again and again, no matter how messy things get around us, so that our hearts can be expanded and the hearts of those we meet can be expanded, and that in that process our aloneness is removed just a little bit more. That is our mission, consecrated in truth. Amen.